I'm in this business for the sense of community, 100%, to make those connections with people while they are usually when they're sitting at the bar, it's like the best part of their day, best part of their week. You really see that when everything's really clicking on all cylinders, the, the lights, the music, the place is busy. You have that, you know, background ambient noise and then the food starts coming out and the drinks start coming out and you see that look on people's face of just like complete satisfaction. From Studio Pod Media, this is the Muddler Podcast. The Muddler exists to tell stories behind your favorite cocktail bars. Cocktail bars become beloved by their patrons for many different reasons. Everything from the vibe, friendly service, convenient location, great music, and of course, the delicious, well-crafted cocktails. But each bar has its own unique story, why it exists and how it came to be, as well as the cocktails made and who actually serves them. I'm TJ Bonaventura, and I'm the host of The Muddler. On each episode, we'll sit down with the owners and bar managers behind some of the most innovative and forward-thinking bars around. Each season will center around cocktail bars in a specific city. Up first, San Francisco. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Golden Rule Spirits. So Golden Rule Spirits is a producer of two canned cocktails, the Old Fashioned and the Margarita. I know what you're thinking, canned cocktails, not really my thing, but I'm telling you guys, if you like a good crafted cocktail, you're going to love these drinks. They're perfect for going to the golf course, for bringing them on the road, vacation, camping, and they are dangerously good. They're about the quarter size of a normal can. You pop these bad boys open, you throw them over ice, and you're good to go. So again, Golden Rule Spirits, goldenrulespirits.com, at Golden Rule Spirits on IG. Check them out. Mamanoko, an SF Japanese Isikawa and sushi restaurant, has a lot of things going for it before you even get to the food and drink offerings. Its first key asset is the presence in the Marina District in SF, a beautiful, often sunny, vibrant neighborhood located right at the northern tip of the city closest to the Bay and Golden Gate Bridge. The Marina has proven to be able to support many successful bars and restaurants over the years. And within the Marina, you could hardly ask for a better location than what Mamanoko has. At the corner of Chestnut and Scott, Mamanoka falls right in the middle of one of the most heavily foot-trafficked corridors in San Francisco. Lined with tons of coffee shops, boutique clothing stores, and bars and restaurants, Chestnut is where you want to be in the marina. And then you have the restaurant's owners and operators. The partners behind Mamanoko are Stryker Scales and Sam Josie. They have worked together to cement quite the roster of highly successful SF establishments. Places like the classic Tipsy Pig, also in the marina, Padrecito and Noe Valley, and Blue Barn. With many locations in SF and the wider Bay Area, Scales and Josie have proven that they know what they are doing, and that vision has extended to Mamanoko. Almost exactly four years old, it opened in the fall of 2017 and took over the space previously occupied by the Mexican restaurant Mamacita. Mamacita, operated by the same restaurant group, had a run of 12 years in the marina, but the team decided it was time for a new direction and a new concept, and thus, Mamanoko was born. In our previous eight episodes, we've highlighted mostly places that are bars, first and foremost, with only one restaurant featured. That was Red Window in episode three. Mamanoko is certainly restaurant first, with its cleanly concepted Isikawa offerings at the forefront. But the bar is not merely an afterthought. It's also a huge part of the restaurant's allure. For one thing, the bar is huge. It's over 20 feet long and can comfortably seat 12 guests with plenty of room, and the menu delivers as well. Bar manager Tim Cosgroves run the show behind the bar. He's put together a menu of 10 cocktails supplemented with imported Japanese beer and sake options. We sat down with Tim right at the bar in Mamanoko. We were eager to hear about the process of finding the right beverages to complement the Japanese food they provide. So one thing with 
Mamanoko is that it is a restaurant and bar. And um, we've had a lot of other conversations with with places that are strictly just bars. So you have the challenge of you have to make sure that the bar program pairs nicely with the menu, but specifically pairs nicely with a sushi menu, which I can imagine is something that's in and of itself a completely different challenge. It sure it sure is. It's a challenge I really, really embrace and I've really, really enjoyed being a part of ever since I got the opportunity to take over the bar program at Umami back in 2014-ish. I really, really, I have a lot of admiration for restaurant bars. I really like the whole experience of both food and drinks and everything that goes into balancing the two of them out. And that being said, too, trying to, just like you said, make sure you're not having overly complex and really, really not strong tasting, but just like really, really intense, smack you in the face cocktails is not something we want to do here because we want to, just like you said, we want to complement the food, which is the star of this place, 1000%. And we want to make sure that we can complement that, even enhance it in any way we can without trying to become too much of a cocktail bar. We are a restaurant bar that serves hopefully very good balanced cocktails. But first and foremost, we are a restaurant. And when you're coming up with the cocktail menu at a sushi restaurant and a fine sushi restaurant, it's easy. I'm going to say easy, but I'm going to put in quotes. Easy to use sake as one of the main spirits that you want to put in there because it's something that everyone equates to sushi. Oh, and sushi, I'm going to have sake. But you guys do a good job of creating a menu that has a lot of cocktails that would not have sake in it, right? So what is your approach when you were coming up with a bar program of like, how can I think of something that is going to go well with a sushi meal or Japanese meal that is not going to have sake? I think the first thing that we think about when coming up with new cocktails is not just the the taste of it or how it even complements the food or the sushi. I think it's most of all about the approach of trying to have a conversation with the guest about what is in this cocktail and how is it prepared and all these things because the majority of the questions we get from our guests are about the food, about the sushi. A lot of people are here and having sushi or Japanese cuisine for the first time. And there's a lot of terms on our menu food-wise that they are not familiar with whatsoever. So we want to be able to focus on that conversation and make sure that our cocktails are very approachable while maybe being a step up from something they have experienced in this neighborhood, for sure. But also, we want to have our focus on food as much as possible. So that means that we're, you know, maybe not necessarily mixing three or four spirits in the same drink. We're really trying to have, you know, a base spirit that really shines through, just like a certain fish would maybe shine through on the sushi menu. The Japanese philosophy is to really take that one ingredient and make it shine and not try to mask it with too many sauces or you know ingredients or seasonings or this or that. You really want that main ingredient to shine. So we take that same approach with the cocktails here. We'll, we will have some, some drinks that feature whiskey, gin, whatever it is, but we don't try to stray too far away from being able to make sure you you taste that Suntory Toki, you know, more than anything, or you taste that Pisco more than anything. Yeah, though maybe it'll be some tea infusions or some different modifier things that are going in there. But we really want to make sure that our main ingredient really is the star of, the, of that particular show. Yeah, and you guys did a good job with that. Because one thing that I that I appreciated is that your cocktail menu isn't that large, like first and foremost, which I really appreciate. It's like, you know what, 
let's not try and overcomplicate this because the food we're about to eat is not overcomplicated. So if we're going to try and make this crazy cocktail, it's probably or multiple different cocktails that have way too many ingredients. Like you said, it's just going to overpower and that's like not the route you want to go. So something I, I very much appreciate. The other thing I appreciate is the vibe in here and the ambiance. And especially when you come in at night, it's, it's kind of dimly lit. It feels like you're like walking into an authentic Japanese restaurant. In the restrooms, you have the translators going yeah. on, which is such a cool... One, definitely the highlight for many people coming in here is learning, to, learning to speak some Japanese phrases. I joke it's the only thing that's free here. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was the thought about like, you know, the type of vibe ambiance that you guys are trying to achieve? And for you, you know, when you're coming up with a bar program... How do you think about that when it pairs with like, okay, people are coming in, they're trying to go to have, they're going to have a specific experience that the ownership wants them to have, or you want them to have, not just from when they walk in, but also when they go and grab their first cocktail. Sure, sure. They are our owners and everyone who was a part of, of building this space just did an absolutely beautiful job. And this is by far the most beautiful bar I've, I've ever worked in. And they really wanted it to really resemble a lot of things you would see if you were going to walk into a Japanese like izakaya. So a lot of really nice woodwork. Like you said, the, the lighting is really, really on point, especially over we have these really, really nice lanterns above the bar, which just have the, the perfect, just everything. It just It's very, very intimate. Everywhere you sit in the bar, whether or it, even in the restaurant, excuse me. So whether it's, you know, in a couple of our booths in the back, we have a sushi bar where you can get right up and close to our, our chefs and see what they're doing. Even our parklet out front has, you know, Japanese lanterns and the same kind of painting and in some ways like woodwork that you would see on the inside. So we try to be as kind of traditional in the sense of making it feel like you're walking into a Japanese izakaya or a Japanese sushi bar. But for us, you know, having both kitchens under one roof and being able to have that experience from both kitchens and the atmosphere and everything that we're, you know, you were just talking about is what we really pride ourselves on is having our two kitchens under one roof and having a very seamless transition back and forth between both kitchens, whether it's, you know, coursing and flavors and all that stuff so that one kitchen doesn't shine more than the other, but it also doesn't take too much flavor from the other kitchen as well. Yeah. And the, the one thing I appreciate is you have a pretty large bar here. It's, it looks like it's almost like 20 to 30 feet long. It's a it, fortress. It's yeah. huge. But you don't squash people in, which I love. I love that you have like your space. If you're here on a date or if you're here just by yourself and you want to have a cocktail and a little bit of Japanese food, like you can do that and sit comfortably and still feel like you're at home in this very like dimly lit, fun, comfortable environment, which is something that I, that I very much appreciate. Yeah, I, we've worked really hard to really work out that spacing. And when we first opened, we were a little more aggressive about jamming people in here. So I think half of it too is, half of it is, seeing people's reactions to, I won't lie, we're, we're not a cheap restaurant. We have a lot of good values in a lot of places, but if you want to come here and eat a lot of sushi, it's, you know, we have really, really high quality product and it is not super cheap. So that being said, we want people to be as comfortable as possible. It's really, really important to us. So going down from 15 seats of the bar to 12 and having space. So each kind of set of two chairs, really, you feel like you're kind of even though you're sitting around other people, you really kind of can have that same sort of intimacy that you were kind of at a table at the same time. And that that is really, really important to us. But also to the pandemic really kind of played a, a role in that. And as we were coming back and putting the bar back together, we wanted to make sure that we started out with four seats and then it was eight and then 10. And then we kind of like, all right, what's, what's maybe the best way to make people feel safe and comfortable and also feel like they're having the best value for spending their hard earned money here. 
We wanted to highlight a couple of unique angles with how Mamanoko weathered the pandemic. Now, these angles aren't exclusively applicable to Mamanoko, but to capture some of the intricacies that the hospitality industry has faced since March 2020. And there are details that the average customer at the restaurant or patron at the bar may not think. First off, think about perhaps the most universally adopted way that bars changed their business plans to operate after the COVID shutdown. That was with to-go cocktails. Before bars were able to open back up in full force, to-go cocktails provided a nice stopgap as a way to keep operating and generate revenue. But with that pivot came various other challenges. Then think about the ways that these drinks were being packaged. They weren't just shaken up and poured in red solo cups, so that would have been kind of awesome. No, they were perfectly measured out in repeatable quantities and packaged up in presentable glassware. So this created a crazy demand and supply issue for the bars. Mamanoko went with mason jars for their drinks, but they had to do their best to beat the rush for inventory and be able to supply drinks to their customers. So in that time, did you get any opportunity within yourself to think about like how you'd want to manipulate or change the bar program here? Totally. We knew that we were going to come back and do some to-go cocktails. So just, you know, trying to think about changing up any of our cocktails to maybe be a little more to-go friendly. Of course, what kind of packaging are we going to use? What kind of glassware? All that stuff. How are we going to seal them up? How are we going to reduce some prices to make sure that we are staying competitive with different retail establishments around us? But we got really lucky because our our sister restaurant, the, the Tipsy Pig, orders their little personalized mason jars by the thousands. And they store them here at at our space here at Mamanoko. So we had just unlimited glassware to use as to-go cocktail vessels. And I don't think people understand during that time how much of a value that is because because it was there was such a demand for those to-go glassware or just to-go any sort of drinkware that for you guys to have that is just a massive, just like, not just a benefit, but a plus that you don't have to worry about finding those because so many other people that we either had conversations with or that we had heard, you know, through other people, like they had trouble just ordering them because everybody wanted them and they were just kind of sold out. It was really intense. We had to find the lids for these mason jars. So basically like the, the ball mason jar company makes lids that fit onto those ones. So it became an all hands on deck approach to find every single hardware store you can in this area where I live up in Marin County, up where my other managers live or down in, you know, different areas of San Francisco and just buying every single mason jar lid we possibly could. And it was quite an endeavor. It was pretty intense. But once we had everything lined up here, all of a sudden we could start selling doubles of all of our cocktails. And I think we started with just like our three top sellers, just make it streamlined, nice and easy and, you know, give the people what they want. And we were doing, you know, most of our cocktails are priced at 12, 13. Maybe you get into some Japanese whiskey stuff, it gets up to 15. But we were selling doubles for 20 bucks out the door with a glass that you could take home. You have a little tipsy pig glass at home. And even I think we, for some time after the lids became really, really hard to find, I think we were offering incentives to like, bring them back, we'll wash them, we'll get a couple bucks off your next one. And we had some, our regulars are just so supportive and so wonderful in so many ways. And we really made it through this because so many people cared about making sure that this business really made it through. And I think there was a lot of people that didn't even need to buy that much alcohol, but they just did it because they wanted to support us. And it was really, really amazing. And and that being said, being able to offer Japanese food to go while everyone else had started getting sick of pizza and burgers and whatever else, what have you, not a lot of people make Japanese food at home. Nobody really makes sushi at home unless they've already really used to it. So we had a really big advantage compared to other businesses in the area that we had a unique opportunity to provide a really good to-go experience that a lot of other people didn't have the opportunity to do. 
The second angle that this conversation uncovered was importing and exporting during COVID. So many restaurants have had to navigate complex supply chain issues for their ingredients and products during the pandemic. This goes for domestic products that experienced delays and holdups during COVID. For one example, consider how many meat processing plants experienced virus breakouts that held up shipments of eggs, chicken, beef, and more. This problem extends to bars too. Taking Mamanogo as just one example, they serve only Japanese-produced beer, as well as plenty of Japanese whiskey and sake. So the team has gotten familiar with shipping delays for some of their high-end and rare products. And as a result, they've had to think about whether changes in their menu offerings might be in order. Speaking of advantages, there's also, you know, you talked a little bit of disadvantages, but being that you are a Japanese restaurant, you have predominantly all Japanese beers. I think you only have that Japanese beers, right? For totally. I think yeah. at this point we, we might have to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. You have all Japanese beers. And so with that, um, you have a lot of obviously Japanese ingredients here behind the bar. You're dealing with import issues right now as we, as we fast forward now a year plus later, that like now with this new variant potentially coming in or, you know, with, you know, a new uptick of, of what's going on in cases and, you know, you have to deal with like supporting and fulfilling what you have behind the bar with a country that is having a tough time exporting it to what you guys promote for your cocktail menu. Is that correct? Yeah, Absolutely. I can't really imagine how hard it is to be in this business, uh, or at least in the in the business of brewing sake, stilling whiskey, trying to get that all packaged up and shipped out. If you're in Japan right now, I can't imagine how difficult that is because we're having a really hard time just every week as a new adventure of something else that is in our menu or most likely multiple things that are out of stock with no ETA. So it's been a lot of pivoting and changing up our menu a lot. The, the, the one thing that's actually been we've been pretty lucky with is whiskey still been coming through. And that's kind of our biggest showcase here on our, on our back bar is our Japanese whiskey list and our, and our everything that we have going on with that. But sake is really starting to run out. It seems like I don't, I don't know exactly what breweries are open and what shut down or what's stuck on a boat somewhere or what dock is not in operation. There's just so many variables that go, go in it. But uh, yeah, trying to import a lot of your bar program from a different country during this time is proved to be very challenging. And the other thing about that too is like when you're head of the bar program and you're coming up with these different cocktails, they all have specific ingredients that go with that cocktail. And it's not like you can just swap in one sake from, you know, from Japan, from a specific region of Japan to something that's being made here in the States in the East Bay. Like that flavor profile changes everything to that specific cocktail. Sure. And and a lot of the times too, I mean, all all of the sake that we get from Japan, it's really good stuff. And they take a lot of pride in that product being what it is and not to be infused with something else to be masked with sugar and all this stuff. We want people to enjoy the sake for for the product that it is right now. And yeah, maybe there's some other stuff that's available domestically that we'll mess around with, with, with some cocktails. But so many of these breweries are take so much pride in their process, their craft, their ingredients, the water source that's nearby them and all this stuff. And the last thing we want to do is kind of ruin that by turning it into some Americanized version of a, you know, sugary cocktail or something like that. Before we move into the cocktail section here, where we'll take a little break, I want to talk about that moment of when you were able to have people back in here, because I would imagine that whether it was what would be your typical day off, like you were probably here when you were able to have people at the bar again. And like, what was that experience like for you? It was amazing. I'm in this business for the sense of community, 100%, to make those connections with people 
while they are usually when they're sitting at the bar, it's like the best part of their day, best part of their week. You really see that when everything is really clicking on all cylinders, the, the lights, the music, the place is busy. You have that, you know, background ambient noise and then the food starts coming out and the drinks start coming out and you see that look on people's face of just like complete satisfaction and getting to talk to them about that moment is why I am, you know, 37 years old and, and still in this industry because I just can't get away from that experience. So not being able to have that for, I don't know how long, several, several months, but not even being able to have people in the bar for over a year, it was a, it was a big psychological toll. So to have people back here, we started seating the bar, I don't know, maybe about a month before the official like June 15th reopening with, you know, four seats that were extremely social distance from each other, from myself, from everyone else in the restaurant. But just having that sense of community back really was just a huge, huge improvement on everything in my life. 1000%. And it's like, as a patron or someone who's coming in to grab a drink, like, it is just as painful for you guys on the other side of the bar to be able to serve and talk to us and chat about, like, what's going on? How can I help you? Is there anything I can do better? You know, you want to talk about a cocktail or life yeah. or whatever it may be or find some sort of commonality. Like, that is equally as a struggle for for you guys there than for anybody who's just sitting behind the bar and you guys are making a, an awesome cocktail for you. Like, it's it was a struggle for everyone. Sure, sure. Yeah, I even found myself a couple times because I was just, I'd be back here shaking cocktails by myself, bringing them outside. And sometimes I'd find myself dropping off some cocktails to a table and trying to like strike up a conversation with them because I miss it so much. And then after I drop off the conversation, these people are giving me a look like, what are you still doing here? Leave. Like, I want to enjoy my dinner. And I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. I just, I want to feel that sense of human connection again that I just haven't gotten at my job in such a long time. So having people back and now having a full bar, it's just, I feel whole again. We're taking a quick break to talk about our favorite sponsor, Golden Rule Spirits. Mm -hmm. And Joey, when I first told you that Golden Rule Spirits was going to be our sponsor and their products were a canned cocktail, you were, let's say, a bit skeptical. I had a skeptical reaction. That's right. So what has changed your mind? Now, what about Golden Rule Spirits just gets you, gets, gets you excited? Gets me warm and fuzzy. Warm and fuzzy. I'll be honest, TJ, my experience with canned cocktails up to the point in my life before you introduced me to Golden Rule was that they're just sort of like a park hang, beach hang, watered down version of a regular cocktail. Mm. Not the real deal. Golden Rule, I have to give it up to the guys at Golden Rule. They are not giving you a take on an old fashioned or a take on a margarita. They're giving you the real thing in a can. They sure do. And these cans are the best for literally any occasion. You did mention they're great for a beach. They're great for on the road. They're great if you want to just maybe sneak them on an airplane and, you know, pop those open and put them over ice. You're not supposed to do it, but don't tell them I told you that. So if you want to learn more about what Hunter and James, the founders at Golden Rule Spirits are doing, go to goldenrulespirits.com. Follow them at Golden Rule Spirits on Instagram. Given that the bar imports such nice Japanese whiskeys and keeps them stocked at all times, it makes sense that whiskey is highlighted on the cocktail menu. Three of the 10 drinks currently on the bar's menu feature Japanese whiskey as the main spirit. We were lucky enough to try two of Amanoko's best-selling cocktails. They were also two of the three that they ended up packaging and selling to their to-go customers during the pandemic. We started here talking about their best-selling whiskey drink, the Mukashi. So the Mukashi is, I would say, one of our signature cocktails. It is the only cocktail that we brought over from the old umami and brought it down here to Mamanoko. When we first started making it at 
umami, it was very, very easy to get single malt Japanese whiskey for a much cheaper price than you can get now. So I think when we started, we were using something like Hakushu 12 year, maybe even some uh, like Habiki for a little bit, depending on what was available. But it now consists of Suntory Toki whiskey, uh, a little bit of Averna Amaro, lemon juice, honey, and some orange bitters. Mukashi is a Japanese word which translates to a long time ago. So it is once again a reference to umami and the program that we built over there and then how, you know, things have evolved since then. That's kind of another story for our other cocktails. But at this point, I believe we have three whiskey cocktails. I think when we opened up, we were doing like, we tried like five or six or just some stupid number that very quickly we realized we need to dial it back. But the focus on our bar program is first and foremost, Japanese whiskey, 100%. If you don't mind me talking a little bit about Japanese whiskey for a second, because maybe I'm I'm thinking about it wrong, but it seems like there's there was almost like, I wouldn't say like a renaissance, but there was the popularity of Japanese whiskey in the last 10 years is just like completely skyrocketed. Obviously, it's been huge over there for a while. But like, when did it really start in your mind, like being in the industry? Like when, when did it really start to take off? Right? Oh, this is something that we need to start using for our cocktails and not just because we're a Japanese restaurant or I work at a Japanese establishment. Yeah, I think it was right around the time I, I, I took over the bar program at Umami, which I think was uh, 2014. And I'd started working at Umami in 2012, and we had some bottles of Yamazaki 12-year and Yamazaki 18-year from Suntory, and they didn't get a lot of interest. And I tasted them and thought they were really, really delicious. You know, they have a lot of those signature scotch characteristics of peated malt, but a little bit more on the sweeter side to kind of balance out the back end. But pretty soon, as I wanted to expand the whiskey menu, I started running into a lot of roadblocks. And you realize that a lot of the stuff is becoming harder to get. It's becoming more allocated with your reps. And all of a sudden, you know, trying to put in a, a, a case of, you know, Habiki 12-year turned into, you know, maybe you can get a bottle in a month, maybe. But maybe can you buy this other tequila in our portfolio and maybe some of this rum? And all of a sudden, there's a lot more strings attached. And then I was at a... Nopa one night and, and saw that they, you know, had some cocktail on the menu with like some, you know, Habiki 12 year and uh, I think some Montenegro. And I was like, wow, this is really, you know, happening at, at other places that just isn't Japanese restaurants. And, you know, started buying some cocktail books and, you know, saw that like in the Please Don't Tell cocktail book from New York City that, you know, there's a couple of recipes in there with some, you know, Yamazaki 12 year or what have you. And you kind of realize that it's, it's this thing that is really growing at an exponential rate really, really fast. What do you use for like inspiration when you are, are coming up with a cocktail? I don't know, did you, did, was this your baby? Yeah, this, this one is definitely my baby. At that point, we didn't have a Japanese whiskey cocktail on the menu. So I was really, really motivated to put a Japanese whiskey cocktail on the menu, kind of seeing how the trends are really changing. So I just kind of experimented with a heavy whiskey presence first, and then maybe some modifiers around that. And messing around with some different Amaros, some different sugar contents. I forget how many different versions we we made of this, but we finally got our hands on a bottle of a, a Verna Amaro, which is a little more citrus forward, and it really works so well with kind of the softer notes. I think at the time we were using a Hakushu, and it worked really, really nicely because we wanted to put a little bit of honey in there too. And yeah, you know, it, it's weird. I, I don't really have kind of one specific 
process for every cocktail. Usually a lot of the times it, it comes from seeing that, you know, maybe we have a hole in our menu that we have a, a spirit that's not really getting the attention that it deserves. So it's just kind of comes from, all right, let's just start here with this spirit. And, you know, to be honest, my most valuable cocktail book isn't even a cocktail book at all. It's the flavor Bible up there on, on the back bar by, uh, I think it's Karen and Andrew Page. I, I forget their names, but it's a cookbook, which tells you what ingredients work very, very well with other ingredients. And depending on what ingredient you're looking at, whether it is Japanese shiso, or it is Japanese yuzu, like they're kind of citrus, all of a sudden you start having some tools to maybe look at what other ingredients might work really, really well with that. And you start maybe kind of going from less of a bartender's perspective, and maybe a little more of a chef's perspective. And I, I've found that being able to understand how flavors work together while cooking at home has a lot of advantages doing things behind the bar here. And I think if I were to ever own my restaurant, I don't think I would ever hire a bar manager who could not cook. Mm -hmm. There's just no way. Interesting. I love that. <laughs> the one thing I do really appreciate about the Mukashi here is when you get it, and I, please don't take offense to this, when you, the, the look of it, is a bit murky. It, it, it doesn't look like what you're about to taste. And when you sip it, it is, you definitely get the Japanese whiskey in there, but you get a ton of like those citrus forward flavors, which is incredible. But when you look at it, you're like, I don't know what I'm about. I have no idea what's going to happen when I put this in this mouth. It's like almost somewhat like a bit of a surprise if, if I'm being honest. Yeah, no, totally. It, it definitely kind of has that, that mystery aspect to it because it it's not our prettiest looking cocktail. We have a lot of things that definitely kind of jump right out a lot more and are, and are a lot a little bit more of a pleasant presentation. This one we serve up in a coupe glass, and I think you mentioned the garnish. We dehydrate all of our house cocktail garnishes here just so for a couple of different reasons, mostly for sustainability, and we just don't have to throw anything away. It also looks really good, too, and it's, it's a nice contrast with that. We have a dehydrated lemon in this one, and it's really, really dark, and it tends to really have a, provide a nice contrast with kind of that murkiness, the whiskey, and it's that, it's that Averna Amaro and just that really, really dark, viscous kind of color and texture to it that really just puts it all together. For our next drink, Tim illustrated a common trend that we're sure many bartenders and bar managers out there are familiar with, when your customer base dictates what kind of drinks show up on your menu. Tim's vision was to have a small menu of primarily whiskey-driven cocktails to complement the food offerings at Momonoko. But that vision didn't necessarily materialize. It can't be ignored. And businesses have to adjust in order to sell product. So Tim and the team had to take a fresh look at the cocktail options. And that brings us to our second drink, the Paper Crane. This is called the Paper Crane. It is equal parts tequila, Aperol, dry vermouth, and some lemon juice and just the smallest dash of uh, elderflower liqueur. And then, of course, a little bit of a, like a saline spray on top to give you a little bit of a salt kick like you would usually enjoy with agave-based spirits and cocktails. This is one of the cocktails I think that best represents kind of the idea that you have in your mind when you're creating a bar program, and then also, then on the other side, the reality that hits you once you open up and you see what people are actually ordering and what they're enjoying and what they're not ordering. So we, we opened up with a pretty small cocktail menu. And like I said, it was a lot of whiskey. But because this used to be a Mexican restaurant called Mamacita, our first night open, I will never forget, we... We have tequila on our back bar. We have some Fortaleza. I think at the other time, we had some really good stuff that was still left over from uh, Mamacita. So we had a, a decent offering. But I remember getting all these different ice spheres ready, which are really labor intensive. You got to like, you know, get the water in there and pull them apart and 
it's really labor intensive. And we had all these fears ready. So we were going to pour Japanese whiskey over and some of our cocktails. And then we open and everyone keeps ordering fucking tequila. <laughs> tequila on the rocks, margaritas, all these things. And I was like, all of a sudden, like two hours in, we're almost out of ice fears. And I'm just like freaking out. Like, this is not going to work. Like, we need to... There's no tequila presence on our menu. There is no tequila cocktail on our menu. It was really solidified that as the time went on and just that nothing changed. I mean, we were selling, you know, all of our drinks decently well, but also you realize that there is a big demand for tequila and mezcal and we need to, we need to deliver that to the people. So going from five whiskey-based cocktails to developing tequila-based cocktails, because you can mess with Japanese whiskey and, and come up with a bunch of cocktails. I can imagine, and you can. there's a lot that you can play with. Tequila is a whole different animal, especially in a Japanese restaurant. So where do you even start? You know, this one, I actually, I just got lucky. I was hanging out off the grid in the Presidio with a couple of friends, and we went out back to their place to uh, keep the party going here in the Marina District. And of course, I was hanging out with some of my friends that don't work in restaurants, but love drinks and love cocktails. And they showed me their bar and which had a bottle of Blanca tequila and some Aperol and some old vermouth. And they had some Meyer lemons, I think. And they're like, can you make something with this? And I was just like, oh, fuck, I will try. I just got lucky. And I did equal parts kind of thinking of a paper plane, which of course is your, your, your bourbon, your Aperol, your Nonino and some lemon juice equal parts. So I just kind of started with that and and brought out, you know, I think like an ounce each of tequila, Aperol, dry vermouth, and that Meyer lemon worked really well. And I shook it up and we poured it and we were like, man, this is actually really good. And and it was so funny because they weren't surprised whatsoever. And, and I was just thinking to myself like, oh God, thank God. Thank God I didn't totally screw up. But yeah, I brought that back over here and, you know, experiments with like a couple of different sugars we had here, different syrups. And of course, Elderflower is kind of like the biggest cheat for uh, for bartenders. It's just like when it's not really working out, throw in some elderflower and everything will be okay. So I really hate using it for that reason, but it works really, really well here. So I have since learned that tequila and Aperol are amazing friends. Leave it to an after-grid after-party to, uh, to come up with a cocktail that you'd want to put on the menu. But you mentioned elderflower. I don't think people understand. One, elderflower, you're right, is kind of a cheat, but it is a very hard liqueur to use because it can be so overpowering. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like a, a bar spoon of elderflower at most. So, I mean, it's it's nice to have. An, and it really comes through for sure. Totally. Like if you were to give this to me, I don't know if I would be able to guess that there was tequila in this, to be quite honest. So like if, for people out there who are not tequila drinkers, like or they, they, they want to get into tequila because everyone has that moment when they're younger and, you know, they're like, I can't do tequila anymore. This would be like a good like like gateway drug to tequila. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. And it's become, you know, we have three agave spirit based cocktails on our menu and uh, two of them are, are our top sellers month after month. So this is one of them. The other one we have is called the La Pagoda, which is a pretty straightforward margarita variation. We we throw in some Le Blanc with some Blanco tequila. We make a hibiscus syrup and uh, some lime juice and like a sage salt rim over there. But even all these years later, I mean, you just see that, you know, tequila and this neighborhood, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah, you got to do it. Right? You got to do it. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's nice to have your ideas of what you want to bring to the table, but, you know, it's a business and you got to make sure that you are, you know, you have that you were selling drinks. So how often are you guys changing the menu or do you not change the menu? It hasn't been in for a pretty long time at this point. I think we've kept all of our cocktails on since pre-pandemic. The only change is 
we've been trying to find like a household fashion that we leave on the menu for most of the year because around Christmas time, we, we bring in some allspice dram and we do kind of what we call a Hokkaido old fashioned, which kind of coincides with the, uh, like the Hokkaido winter festival over in Japan, which, which spans a couple of different months. But we also wanted to do a good old fashioned here, which is not just whiskey, sugar, bitters. So we ended up doing a uh, pork belly fat washed old fashioned. So that's kind of our, our newest one here that we call the Kakuni old fashioned. And yeah, it's, a, it's the first time I've really ever tried fat washing in an actual bar program rather just not doing it at home. But that's really the only one we've changed. And now that things are kind of getting better and better or more back to normal, now it's really time to kind of have fun again and really try some new things out. And I would love to have a good rum cocktail here that people enjoy. That's kind of like my white whale in this neighborhood is bringing a rum cocktail that people enjoy. Rum is a tough one because it is, you can do so many interesting things with it, but at a Japanese restaurant, it's, it's hard. very yeah. hard, very, very yeah. hard. So I don't envy you for trying to figure that no, out. No, totally. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's going to work out, but it's a nice project to have. Um, basically my, my number two bartender over here, we, uh, we really enjoy it. And a lot of times we'll make little like snackery, little daiquiri shots for, for our guests when they like run, ring up a, you know, a pretty big tab or some of our regulars that are here and daiquiri's got a really bad rap because people think we're going to bring out a, a blender and a bunch of like strawberry puree. And we're like, nope, we just got some good rum and some lime juice and some sugar. And people's minds are just blown. Like that is a fantastic drink. And can't put a daiquiri on the menu because it's just, you know, everyone, everyone does it, but it'd be nice to do, a, you know, something else that really changes people's perception of that spirit. Tim has worked for many years at bars in SF and he's done so primarily in the marina. So it stood reason that he's seen some stuff in his time in the neighborhood. For the last call segment, he smartly avoided telling any crazy stories about his time at Mamanoko thus far. But he did bring up one night at a marina dive, and I'm sure many marina familiar listeners to this podcast know well, Mauna Loa. So let's go into our final segment of, of the show, which is going to be called the last call segment. This segment is the most outrageous, maybe outrageous is, is aggressive, but, you know, funny, like story that you're like, you know what? As a bartender, like this is kind of the shit that we have to deal with that everyone has kind of always been there, but they don't really understand like what you have to deal with. And it, it doesn't have to be at Mama Noko, it could be at anywhere that you've experienced. But let's go into any story that comes to mind. Yeah. So I think I think I mentioned I really like restaurant bars. And I think this is this is a reason why, because we close at eleven. <laughs> the weird stuff happens after midnight. But I, I have definitely worked in cocktail bars, I work in dive bars. And there's just, you know, I, the first thing I always like to say is like, people behave badly every day. You need to take it upon yourself as someone who works in this industry to not let it affect you too much and to let it go. Because if you really focus in on all the bad things, you will be out of this industry really, really soon. You need to be able to kind of let that stuff kind of, you know, roll off a little bit and, and move on. But uh, yeah, I've definitely seen some shit. I think I was at the Mauna Loa, which is a uh, a, a really old cash only bar here in the Marina District up on, up on Fillmore and uh, Union Street. And right around last call, there was a young gentleman who just could not understand the concept of time or the concept of no or that we're closed. And I think it got to the point where he took a bar chair outside and like threw it through the front window and it, it crashed down and everything. And we ended up like, a, I think it was like a bouncer and, and I, we ended up kind of going after him for, for a couple of feet and, and just making sure we could hold him down for a couple of minutes while we called the cops. Cause it was like, you know, that's, that's a big deal, man. So I think the, the cops came out a little, a little while later, 
put them in cuffs, put them in the back of their car. And all they had to do was like, just pay for the window or agree to pay for the window or else he was going to go to jail. And he was just so in his own drunken mind about how right he was in the situation and how we were in the wrong that he went to jail instead of paying for a $400 window, which, you know, obviously just people do the stupidest things when they're drunk and out of their minds. And I really enjoyed not bartending at 1.30 anymore for that reason, because a lot of weird stuff happens after midnight and I, I don't really dig it. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of weird stuff that happens before midnight, but like at a, at a fine Japanese restaurant that makes very nice cocktails, I think it's a few and far between. Yeah, it's, you know, I, th I think the pandemic really, when we went out on the street, we were a lot more exposed to what's going on out there. So we, we've had our, our fair share of run-ins of people who are just not doing so well. They, you know, they have their own issues with homelessness or mental health or, or, or addiction or what have you. And it's hard to see, but also too, it's, it's hard because you have to manage it with the with your guests that are out there and people are coming by and knocking drinks and food off a table or, or just, you know, grabbing food off the table. I had one, one person that was trying to steal some food and they unfortunately grabbed a bottle of wasabi and put it in their mouth. And they just started almost like choking for dear life. I'm just kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't just eat whatever's on the table. You don't, you don't know what you're going to get. So it's been quite an experience bringing the restaurant out to the street and on the sidewalk and the parklet and, and all that stuff. So but yeah, you, you are right. Being in a little more of a controlled environment inside in a Japanese restaurant, it's nice. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find more about what you guys are doing here in Momonoko? Where can they find out more about what you're doing? So that way they can come in here and enjoy what you've been doing from the bar program, from everything you guys are doing in the kitchen. Please, please share. Yeah, thanks so much, DJ. Really appreciate you for having me on here today. So yeah, Mamanoko is located on Chestnut Street in San Francisco. It is between Scott Street and Divisadero Street, right next to the uh, the Marina Supermarket. We are online. Our website is at Mamanoko SF, as in San Francisco, mamanokosf.com, which shows our, our menus, our hours, links to reservations, all that good stuff, including our cocktail menu and even our whiskey list as well. And then, of course, you can find us on the old Instagram at Mamanoko SF. Amazing. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. That wraps up our visit to Mamanoko. Thanks so much to Tim and the team for having us and telling us about their beautiful restaurant. Next up on The Mudler, we're going back to Fidei and we're featuring Dirty Habit. The Mudler is a Studio Pod Media original podcast. I'm your host, TJ Bonaventura. Our writer is Joey Mezzatesta. Editing and music provided by Notalap. For more information, make sure you subscribe and rate us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go to themudlerpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at themudlerpodcast.com.